You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, what is up, Resonate? Uh, it's so good to be here with you today in this space. Uh, my name is Ben. I get to serve as one of the pastors in our network, uh, specifically down in Monmouth, Oregon. And it is my joy to get to be here with you today as we as we open up a brand new sermon series um, today. So as we dive in, I wanted to quickly begin by uh, telling you about a recent discovery that was made. Um, for many years, there was a professor of religious studies who taught at a small university in Chicago. And this particular professor would offer a course to students who wanted it, simply titled Jesus. And for the entire semester, this course would take a deep dive into Jesus of Nazareth. So pretty straightforward, as you'd expect. Um, But what was significant about this Jesus course that this professor administered um, was that on the first day of class, every single time, every semester, he would begin the course with an exam. So you, you walk into class first day, you got a test on your desk, right? Um, he, he would begin his course with an exam. And this exam was significant because it was broken into two parts. Um, the first would begin uh, with a set of questions asking students to describe what they thought Jesus was like. So questions like, is Jesus moody? Uh, does, does Jesus get nervous? Um, is, is Jesus the life of a party or is he more of an introvert. So so the first portion of this exam, students would begin uh, describing what they thought Jesus would like. As we went on to the second portion, the second half of the exam, uh, the exam would then ask them the same exact questions, but would slightly alter the language. Only this time, they weren't answering questions about what they thought Jesus was like, but they were answering questions about what they were like. And and year over year, as this professor gave this exam on the first day of his Jesus course, he found uh, that the results were staggeringly consistent. Everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. (laughs) Everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. That's what this professor discovered. Um, As it turns out, most students would answer these two sets of questions, one being about what they thought Jesus was like, and one being about themselves and their own personalities, it would answer them in a nearly identical fashion. And, and while, while this is just one kind of maybe goofy exercise, I think it paints a picture of something that is of utmost importance for you and I today. Um, A.W. Tozer, the 20th century pastor, theologian, author, um, famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So for you and I, even right now, what what comes into our minds when we think about God? What what are the thoughts that flood and fill our minds? So I think for most of us, there, there are generally kind of a few things, maybe four things that are going to color or shape our view of God. Uh, the first, as this professor discovered, um, is often like our personalities, like what we're like. We will kind of discover what we're like, and then we'll project that onto how we view God, maybe. Uh, second is people of faith that we interact with, maybe maybe other Christians that we know. They will shape uh, our view of God. Um, third, uh, I, I think, is really uh, authority that we interact with in our lives. 
Um, when we interact with authority, it begins to shape and form um, and, and color our view of God in a way, uh, knowing that he perhaps is an authority above all authorities. And then fourth, um, culture. Culture really shapes and colors our view of God. So the grand question I think that lays before us, knowing all of this is true and thinking about what Tozer said, the, the grand question is, is this. Um, is there a way that we can not just project ourselves onto God um, or, or just view God in light of culture or, or something else, but is there a way that we can accurately discover and explore what he is truly like and see what it means to live in light of who he really is? And our hope and our prayer is that as we get into this series throughout the next four weeks, um, as we begin this series called Covenant and Kingdom, um, we can begin to see that the answer to that question is yes, is yes. So you, you might ask, okay, why covenant and kingdom? Those are words that we maybe don't use um, every day in our everyday language. Um, the, the big idea is this. Um, when we come to the God of the Bible, we begin to see that he relates to his people in, in, in a multifaceted way. Uh, and two of the things that we begin to see is that God establishes covenant, and he also invites into his kingdom. So again, as we get into the series throughout the next four weeks, we're going to begin to explore those ideas and, and talk about some of the, the massive realities of what God is like and who he is and what he invites us into. Um, so we're going to do that. But today in our time, what we need to do uh, is, is to lay some groundwork for what's to come. We have to, we have to lay some groundwork. Um, and, and here's why I think we have to lay some groundwork. Because there's, there's a tension that exists as we even open up a series that, that is really asking the question, what is God like? And here's the tension. Um, there's a lot of talk about God in the world today, right? Generally, most people have uh, some perspective or some view about God, um, thoughts on where we came from, how we got here today, and so on. Uh, and these, these thoughts, these views can uh, range from having high belief in the supernatural to low belief in the supernatural um, and our basic religious studies courses in college give us an overview of the scope of faith expressions that exist around the world today. Um, but, but maybe at the same time, e even more specifically here in our context, in our country, here, here uh, we begin to see that secularism is growing rapidly as, as church affiliation and membership decline drastically. So when it comes to some of the thoughts about God that exist in our culture Today, we, we might hear things like Karen Armstrong in A History of God, her book, saying, In the beginning, human beings created a God who was the first cause of all things and the ruler of heaven and earth. But over time, he has gone away. He is distant and inaccessible and unattractive and now needs to be replaced. Therefore, each generation has to make a new God in their own image. That's Karen Armstrong and, and her thoughts. Uh, Sigmund Freud said that God is just a projection of our inner desires. It's so maybe similar to what the professor kind of administered in his class in his Jesus course. Um, Karl Marx once said that God is just a way of keeping the hungry masses silent. Um, the German philosopher Nietzsche said that Jesus taught a wimpish religion that sapped the energy of humankind ever since. And Richard Dawkins, the outspoken atheist, just says that believing in God is basically stupid. So uh, lots of thoughts about God in our world today. Um, some certainly positive, some certainly negative. Um, but the question for us is, is how can we be sure that we're getting God right? 
Can we be sure? Um, can we know God? Jesus, uh, he, he clearly says that um, we actually can. We see this maybe specifically in a time where uh, he actually is praying in the book of John in chapter 17 in verse 3. And he says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Jesus clearly taught that we can know God. And he also additionally clearly taught that whether we do or whether we do not is of ultimate and eternal importance. So the question for us in our time today is is how? How do we go about doing that? How can we know God? Um, And again, this is what we have to do. We have to get through this stuff in order to lay some groundwork, lay the foundation for what's going to come as we get into this series. So I'm going to warn you, um, this sermon could probably be, it probably should be an entire sermon series on its own. Um, So there's a lot to cover in our time today, um, but I'm going to do my best to stay engaging. I hope you can track along with me and stay with me in this. So if you do have your copy of scripture, we invite you to pull that out. And uh, we're we're going to turn and open it to uh, the very first page. We're going to open up to the first page of the Bible and and zoom into uh, the beginning of history altogether in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, we're just going to start in verse 1. Look at real quick the first two verses here. So Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we'll pause for a moment. Um, Maybe you are incredibly familiar with these words. Uh, Maybe you've opened up to the book of Genesis and you've read these words, these sentences, hundreds of times before. Or or perhaps maybe um, you are not so familiar and this is the first time you're hearing these words. And no matter where you are right now, um, I want you to stop and I want us to feel the significance of what was just said in these sentences. Um, it says this, do, it says this, in the beginning, there was nothing except for God. And in the beginning, he created everything. Everything. That's, that's literally like the Hebrew translation of the heavens and the earth. Everything. There's some massive implications here in this one sentence. Um, A few months ago, my wife Jess told me that she wanted a porch swing uh, for her birthday. So me being me, being a little bit in over my head, I reasoned rather than going and buying a porch swing, I would just build one. Couldn't be that hard, right? Uh, It ended up being pretty hard. Um, But in in order to build it, what did I need to do? I I needed to go to the lumber yard. I needed to purchase some two by four lumber, some one by four lumber, some fasteners, some glue, some materials, right? And as I constructed this porch swing, I realized that each piece of wood that I fastened together came from a long line of production before it. In order to build the swing, that long line of production before it had to be completed. Each two by four, that I used to build that porch swing used to be a portion of a Douglas fir tree somewhere. And somewhere, sometime, uh, in some place, <laughs> uh, someone cut that Douglas fir tree down and that tree was cut up, it was milled up, kind of uh, milled to the, the correct dimensional lumber and shipped to the big box store. Right? When I build something, when we build something, it always comes from something. It comes from the raw materials that are available to us. 
And Genesis 1 says that that is not so with God. When God created all of creation as we know it, he did it from nothing, from nothing. And I think here's why we have to start here. Here's why this is so important. We have to see this. Genesis 1 says that one of the most foundationally true things about God is that he does not have a creator. God was not created. Rather, um, God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. He is the only uncreated one. And he's eternal, meaning he had no beginning and he will have no end. He has always existed and he always will exist. He is the one that it truly and simply is. He is. And is his, his eternal power and God's eternal power, God supernaturally creates the universe. And the rest of chapter one and chapter two begin to tell us how it all uh, goes down. And so God, um, day by day, takes six days to create. And then on the seventh day, God rests. Um, not because he's tired and weary, but because creation is complete. So let's be clear, right? These truths about God and, and his power and his majesty and him existing and him um, being self-existent, these are significant. Um, and, and do these truths uh, take faith to believe? Certainly. Um, but these truths showcase the immeasurable glory of God. But I think there's something here that, that we're prone to miss if we don't catch it. And we see it here emerge in, in verse three as we keep going. So Genesis one, verse three, what do we read? We see this. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So day and night, <laughs> God's ideas, right? Day and night are God's ideas. Uh, the sun that shines on our face in the midst of the summer, the warmth from the sun, God's idea, God's creation. Um, but, but notice for a moment um, how it is that God creates day and night. Look at how he does it. It says this in verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said. In the opening pages of the Bible were introduced to the God of the universe who speaks, he speaks. We continue to see this. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Throughout the rest of chapter one, in Genesis one, we see this phrase, God said, repeated 10 times. God speaks and creation obeys. God speaks and life itself forms. And I think what we have to realize and we have to see in this is that God in all of his power and all of his majesty and all of his glory, he, he could have done this. God could have created the universe as we know it without ever uttering a word, but that's not what happens. He speaks to create. He expresses his qualities through something like human speech. So as, as we begin to ask the question, what is God like and how is it that we can come to know him and, and know what he is like, um, we'll, we'll begin to see a few timeless truths emerge. And the first of which is really um, that God is a personal being. God is a personal being. Right? God, what we see is a speaking God, which says something about him being personal. 
If, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone, you, you likely have, and, and you begin feeling as if they're being cold, distant, and, and impersonal, what do you realize? What, why do we feel that way when we're in relationships? It, it's often because of a lack of communication, right? When, when we see that God speaks, when we begin to realize that reality, we see that God is not far off, distant, or cold, but that he is personal. And that is just barely uncovered in the fact that he speaks. Additionally, driving a little bit deeper, going a little bit deeper into this, in verse 26, as we scroll down, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So at the the pinnacle of the creation account, if you will, on the final day, God makes humans. And, and, And he sets apart humans in a unique way, kind of set apart from the rest of creation. And among other things, there's a lot going on here, but but we see God speaking again, but but this time the, the language is a little bit different. We see God use the phrase us. God says, let us make man in our image. And so th- this poses kind of an important question for us. Um, why would God say, let us make man in our image? In this verse, verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1, gives one of the first glimpses into the Trinity. The fact that God is three in one. This this blows our minds. This is something that is hard for us to comprehend, but but stay with me. Um, When God makes mankind, when he makes humanity, he takes counsel in himself and, and takes counsel in the Trinity and says, let us make man in our image. So so going back to the the porch swing illustration from just a moment ago, if while I was building that porch swing, I said to myself, kind of under my breath, let us make this porch swing according to our drawings and plans. Um, That'd be strange, right? If you you heard me say that, you'd be like, what's going on, man? What's going on? That'd be strange. It's just me here. I'm just one person. I'm just one being. There's no us here. It's just me. With God, uh, it, it is different, right? Um, We we don't have time for a deep dive into the Trinity, but at a base level, we begin to see that the God of the Bible eternally exists as a society of three persons operating in mutual love and deference. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, uh, this is highlighted and underscored as a vital and key characteristic of God. Uh, in Matthew 28, uh, maybe a passage that we know well, the Great Commission, where Jesus gives a mandate to his disciples, his followers everywhere for all time. He says this, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you've ever participated, been at one of our baptism services, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the Trinity is exposed when, when we begin to baptize, Right? So to make it clear, uh, we do not see three different gods um, fighting for power and authority, competing for supremacy. Uh, We do not see that God kind of changes with time. Sometimes he's like God the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. No. Uh, What we do see is that God is three persons existing as one God. Three persons, but one in nature or being. Uh, there's a pastor named Sam Alberry, uh, just to briefly uh, kind of hone in on this. 
um, that, that kind of illustrated this idea that was really helpful, immensely helpful for me as, uh, as I, I was thinking about the Trinity. And he talks about this idea of thinking about being in personhood in terms of who and what. So just, just to illustrate really briefly, um, I am Ben. I'm Ben. Uh, that, that's who I am. I am one who. Uh, what am I? Well, I'm, I'm a human, human being, right? So, so I am one who and one what. Uh, I'd wager that you probably, um, you, you are, right? You're the same thing. You are one who and one what. Uh, however, um, kind of thinking in a different light, uh, what if we talked about um, Optimus Prime, <laughs> the, the fictional character from the Transformers? Um, kind of put a picture up to, to show. Um, Optimus Prime, okay, who is he? Well, he's Optimus Prime, right? Okay, well, what is he? That's a, it's a little different, right? He's, he's both a semi-truck and a fighting robot. <laughs> so Optimus Prime is one who and two what's. Um, and God, the God of the Bible, in a category of his own, is one what and three who's. So again, what is he? Well, he's the one true eternal God of the universe. Well, who is he? Well, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one what, three who's. Again, this blows our minds. Um, this is something that is hard for us to comprehend. The Trinity should humble us and, and cause us to have reverence for God. Um, but, but here's why this is significant for us in this sermon today. Here's why this is significant. God was personal in nature even before there were persons like you and I for him to interact with. Do we see that? God was personal in nature even before there were people like you and I for him to interact with. So we see that God didn't create Adam and Eve because he was lonely. God didn't, God didn't need Adam and Eve to become loving. Rather, God has always been loving and we see that existing in the Trinity where God exists in the community of uh, the three persons that exist in that. It's in his nature. Um, so I think uh, for us, this is why the pain of loneliness and isolation is so great because we were made in the image of God, meaning we, we bear a reflection of God's very image. And when we see that God is three in one, that there's community in the Trinity, we realize that the pain we feel in isolation and, and loneliness. Um, so we, we have to see this. God is personal. We see this displayed in the fact that he speaks and in the fact that he is three in one, that he is, he is a triune God. So that's the first thing we see. Secondarily, we begin to see this, that God intentionally chooses to make himself known. God intentionally chooses to make himself known. So we see that God doesn't only speak to create, uh, he speaks to relate. At the end of Genesis 1, God speaks to Adam and Eve, the first created humans, giving them the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply to cultivate the rest of God's creation as God's representatives on earth. And then Genesis chapter two ends with this beautiful picture where Adam and Eve are, are running in the garden with God, naked and unashamed, experiencing him, enjoying him, and enjoying the creation that he has given them um, over them. Right, the creator God, he gives his creation a blueprint for life, a blueprint for human flourishing. And it's all connected to God choosing to make himself and his ways known to them. And so, in other words, God lovingly, graciously reveals himself to us. 
And kind of the, the fancy theological phrase for this reality is the doctrine of revelation. The doctrine of revelation. And uh, in revelation or divine revelation, as it's sometimes called, is, is simply um, kind of de- defined this way. It's God initiating relationship with humans by making himself known. God initiating relationship by making himself known. So if you remember, uh, we began our time today asking the question, can we know God? Can we know the God of the universe and come to know what he is like? And the answer is emphatically yes, but only on the basis of God graciously revealing himself to, uh, to his creation. Um, so the opposite of the idea of revelation is, is speculation. And for generations, through philosophy, religion, and spirituality, humans have sought to discover who God is apart from God's revelation. And this is called speculation. And this is this idea of like just kind of speculating and and kind of coming up with our best guess of what God could be like. And we, we should look at this idea that God makes himself known and say, God, we praise you for that because we don't have to speculate and wonder. We don't have to take a shot in the dark wondering what it is you're like because you have made yourself known intentionally to your creation. God, you're good for that. So so the beautiful, timeless truth, the beautiful, timeless truth is that we can't accurately know the God of the universe apart from his self-revelation, but it is available to us, right? Apart from the doctrine of revelation, we'd have no hope of coming to know him. We praise him for that is the way it is. Um, so for just a few moments, I want to kind of dive into this idea of revelation. Um, again, kind of a big word we don't use very much, um, but what does revelation look like specifically maybe uh, today for us? What, what does that mean? What, what's the practical stuff here? So throughout time, theologians and scholars have, have mostly agreed that there are distinctions among types of revelation. Um, and most commonly, they're, they're broken into two categories. And those two categories are general revelation and special revelation. So the first is general revelation. And general revelation, kind of defined, is is the revelation of God given to everyone, everywhere. Uh, We see the Apostle Paul actually write about this in Romans chapter 1. In verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying here that every single human being has has been exposed to God's general revelation. And again, general revelation merely tells us that God exists and gives us some glimpses into what he's like. And this is not to say that every single person has acknowledged God as he is, right? It simply exposes the fact that God is not hiding himself from anyone. He's actually sought to make himself known. So there are three primary places that we're exposed to God's general revelation. Uh, The first is creation. Creation. We saw this a little bit in in Romans chapter 1. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So what we see is that creation itself, the beauty, the majesty, the wonder of the created universe that we live and exist in, 
testifies to the existence of God. The exquisite detail when we zoom into a flower or a fly, right? The, the power of the waves of the sea crashing onto the shore when we're at the beach. Uh, our bodies naturally fighting a virus like the common cold. Um, creation itself uh, testifies to the existence of God. Um, so the first is creation. Second is common grace. Common grace. That's kind of a term that was coined. Uh, the idea is that through common grace, God reveals his love to all people, uh, though not in a saving way. So Paul and Barnabas um, are uh, in the book of Acts as the church is exploding. Uh, they're, they're traveling city by city, planting churches, preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 14, we see this moment uh, where in the middle of a sermon, um, Paul says this, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What he's saying is that God gives good gifts to all people everywhere, to both those who trust and submit to him and to those who don't. I heard the story of a pastor one time who talked about this moment where he was with his wife in their house in the kitchen, and they kind of got into some conflict and he, he got pretty frustrated. And so kind of in an angry outburst of, of emotion, he, he grabbed the trash and kind of angrily walked outside, you know, shutting the door or whatever. And, uh, and as he walks outside, he, he talks about how he felt the warmth of the sun hit his face. And in that moment, he just started crying, started weeping. Because he realized like in the midst of his sin against the holy God of the universe, in the midst of his anger towards his wife, God showered him with common grace displayed in the sun hitting his face. And he wept. He wept. So if, if you've ever laughed, if you've ever held a baby, if you've ever uh, looked at a sunset, you have enjoyed a measure of God's common grace. And finally, number three, uh, the third one, the third way we see God's general revelation is uh, in, in the fact that we have a conscience. It's in our conscience. Um, Romans 2, uh, Paul continues and writes about this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So right, since all human beings bear the image of God, we all have God's morality written on our hearts. So when I, when I was in the third grade, um, I cheated on a spelling test. Uh, bad idea, right? But third grade, cheated on a spelling test. The day before the spelling test, I got all the questions, all the words that I knew were coming and wrote all the right spellings on a piece of paper, showed up to class that day, uh, put that piece of paper in my cubby in my desk. If you had cubbies, you know that. And uh, as I'm writing, you know, doing the test, doing the spelling test, I'm kind of looking down at my answers. I got caught like in two minutes, right? Um, but there's a sense by which like my teacher never had to tell me don't cheat on tests. I was, I was in third grade, didn't have to get told that. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyways, but I, I knew it was wrong. Um, it's kind of a, a small, goofy picture, but there's a sense by which even as cultures change, as cultures shift, it's, it's overwhelmingly obvious to us that, that things like lying, stealing, or, or murdering someone else, murdering our neighbor, right, are, are wrong. Those are immoral things. So creation, common grace, and conscience, the three primary ways that God gives general revelation to us today. And so again, that's kind of the first category that uh, we see when it comes to revelation. The second is special 
revelation. And special revelation is defined um, kind of simply as this. It's God revealing himself in such a way as to make himself known so that people will be able to enter into a relationship with him. So we have to realize God's goal for us is, is not just that we would be aware of his existence, but his goal for us is that we'd actually come into a personal relationship with him, to know him, to enjoy him, to submit to him, to experience him, right? And, and general revelation, in a sense, is meant to lead to special revelation so that we can do those things. So today, there are two means of special revelation that God gives. The first of which, the most important of all, uh, is Jesus. Jesus. Um, the author of Hebrews writes as, uh, as Hebrews opens up, starting in the first chapter, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power, by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the clearest and most important, the clearest and most important revelation of God that there has ever will be, that there has ever been or ever will be. The clearest is Jesus. Jesus is, according to Hebrews, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So if, if we want to know what God is like, uh, we can look at God the Son, Jesus Christ, who at a moment in human history was born of a miracle, lived fully God and fully man, and who ultimately came to lay down his own life to save and rescue his people. And, and what we have to see is that the Bible teaches Christians throughout history have, have I believe this, that there's no way outside of Jesus that someone can come into a saving relationship with the God of the universe. There's no way. Jesus taught that he was and is the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody can come to the Father except by him. Jesus alone has the power to save, rescue, and redeem because of our sinfulness in order to have a restored connection to the God who made us. We must receive and believe the good news we call the gospel seen displayed in Jesus. Uh, one theologian uh, kind of put this pointedly. Um, he said this, Someone can't know that God became a man and died on the cross in our place for sins through general revelation. Therefore, for someone to have a saving knowledge of God, again, to, to experience God and to come into a right relationship with God, they must also receive and believe special revelation, specifically the message of the gospel. So, so this is why like, we, we're so, we so emphatically talk about the idea um, that we should be, as disciples of Jesus, compelled to speak the message of the gospel, to speak the message of what Jesus has accomplished and what he offers all of humanity in his life, death, and resurrection. Listen, our, our good deeds of acts and service, like those are great things. We should do those things. Um, but at the same time, like those things can't preach the message about what Jesus has done. We have to tell others with our words the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and the offer that he's making to all people to come and know him, to trust him, to find life in him. That's why. It's the first uh, kind of special revelation that, that, that we see is, is Jesus. And, and the second, it probably wouldn't come as a surprise to you, is, uh, is the Bible. Is the Bible. And when we say Bible, we mean the collection of the 66 individual books that make up the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. 
And, and the Bible is, is God's written words to us. 2 Timothy 3.16, we, we see this so clear. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the point of the Bible is for God to communicate to us what he's like, what we need to know in order to trust and submit to him, and how to obey him. Um, Jesus uh, kind of clearly in a moment, one of the gospels makes this really clear when he's having a conversation uh, with the Pharisees, with the religious rulers of the day who, by the way, would have memorized large chunks of the Old Testament that we know today. And in, in this moment, Jesus kind of says to the Pharisees, hey, you search the scriptures, again, kind of in, in that time would have been the Old Testament as we know today. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So G Jesus says, the Bible's all about me. You guys are missing the point. All of the scriptures are meant to be like an arrow pointing to me, who I am, what I'm doing in the world, how I'm mighty to save. So, man, that is so clear. And, and the running joke in this, uh, we, we've kind of talked about this before, is, um, you know, that really isn't a joke is that, uh, hey, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. <laughs> if you want to hear God speak out loud, speak audibly, then uh, read your Bible out loud, right? <laughs> um, but, but in all seriousness, th this is why we as your pastors, we, ha we have a conviction that we increasingly become people of the word, right? That there are opinions, thoughts, beliefs that are existing about God in our world today. We, we looked at some of them at the beginning of our time today. And, and, and goodness, apart from the words found in the Bible that God has given to us, um, man, we, we can't accurately know uh, what is truth objectively and, and how God has revealed himself to us. So that's that's what we desire for us. Um, so, okay, uh, not sure how you're holding up right now. Not, not sure how you're doing. Um, there's been a ton of information that has just barraged you in the last few minutes. Uh, doctrine of Revelation, the Doctrine of the Trinity, the creation account. Like We've covered probably too much stuff, right? So not sure how you're doing right now, um, but I, I just want to slow down as, as we kind of wrap up and, um, and speak to a question that might be floating around in your mind right now. Um, you, you may be wondering right now, um, Ben, this is all great, a lot of great information, um, but, but so what? Why, why does any of this matter? What does this have to do with me today? And, uh, and, and I would say the answer to that is, is going to be seen here in kind of our third and final point. And the third thing I think that we have to realize and understand is this. It's, it's that revelation is meant to redirect our worship. Revelation is meant to redirect our worship. Um, you and I, and all human beings everywhere, are unceasing worshipers. We're unceasing worshipers. Um, it's been said, I've heard it said, you, you may maybe have heard it said that uh, we were created to worship. Um, I, I think that uh, that's that's actually not the most accurate statement. I think a more accurate statement to say would, would, would be to say that we were created worshiping. And that is to say that um, we can't not worship. Everyone everywhere worships all the time even those who have zero belief in the supernatural and and you you might be here and you might say okay ben that's crazy how can you say something like that um well here, here's why i can say that the the essence of worship is simply this it's it's pouring ourselves out 
It's giving ourselves away for something, whether that's a person, whether that's a cause, an experience, an achievement, or a status. It's giving ourselves away, pouring ourselves out for something, whether it's a person, a cause, experience, achievement, or status, meaning it is possible to worship our careers. Uh, there are businessmen and women around the globe right now who are giving themselves away to their business endeavors, hoping that in them they'll find rest and satisfaction. This means that it is possible to worship a significant other. It's possible to worship a spouse. It's possible, possible to worship a, a child, one of your kids. There, there are people, like we ourselves, we, we can pour ourselves out for other people in our lives, hoping that in them we'll find rest and satisfaction. And I would even say it, it is possible for us to worship ourselves, giving all of who we are away to maintaining an image or, or to elevating our status, hoping, hoping that in doing so, we can find rest and satisfaction. So listen, no, no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself today, um, you, you, you know this to be true. I think you know this to be true. Whether or not we'd like to admit it, we know that we can't stop pouring ourselves out. We can't stop giving ourselves away. Our, our hearts are like little factories of worship. We can't stop worshiping. We were created worshiping. We are unceasing worshipers. And, and the reality, I think, is um, I know uh, is that we can't stop because this is woven into the fabric of who we are as image bearers of God. God designed us this way. And if you're anything like me, you've, you've likely come face to face with the reality that when we give ourselves away for another created thing, for something that, um, that wasn't meant to be the object of our worship, it, it doesn't work very well for us, does it? When, see, we long for rest, for satisfaction, for joy, for security. But the more that we try to find those things in the wrong places, the deeper and deeper our cravings and our longings for those things go. When we chiefly look to a romantic relationship to give us rest and security, we end up crushing that person with expectations that they can't meet as another flawed human. When we chiefly look to our work or our school for joy and satisfaction, uh, we might end up becoming workaholics or, or living uh, in, in fear of failure, paralyzed by it, or, or feeling like we're, we're never doing enough, we're never accomplishing enough, and it crushes us. Um, you see, the word that the Bible uses for misplaced worship is idolatry. And in a sense, this is the essence of all sin. It's the essence of our issue. The thing that first fractured the cosmos is the first humans rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3. And on this idea of idolatry, of, of worship and, and sin, um, pastor and author Timothy Keller says this, says, according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significant purpose and happiness than your relationship to God. So if we can't stop worshiping, if we're unceasing worshipers, then what is the solution? What's the solution? And the, the solution is that we need our worship to be redirected to the right object. 
And the correct object, the right object, is the one eternal triune God of the universe. He's the only one who's worthy of our pouring ourselves out. He's the only fit object of our worship. You see, God reveals himself to us as his creation so that our worship can be directed to him and him alone. That's the beauty of why God reveals himself to us. And the more we see him for who he truly is on the basis of how he reveals himself to us, the more his beauty, his goodness, his perfection, his goodness will begin to shine through. And if we're willing, if you and I are willing to relinquish control and to cease pouring ourselves out for created things and come to trust and submit ourselves to the loving God who made us, we can come to discover the rest, security, joy, and satisfaction that we were actually made for. Um, So over the next few weeks, again, as we get into this series, Covenant and Kingdom, we're going to zoom into some of the key attributes of who our God is and and what he's invited us into. Um, But to close, I just want to read the the rest of what Tim Keller writes, um, honing in now on the person of Jesus. He, He writes this. Remember this, if you don't live for Jesus, you will live for something else. If you live for a career and you don't do well, it may punish you all your life and you will feel like a failure. If you live for your children and they don't turn out all right, you could be absolutely in torment because you feel worthless as a person. However, if Jesus is your center and Lord and you fail him, he will forgive you. Your career can't die for your sins. Whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. Jesus is the one Lord you can live for who died for you, the one who breathed his last for you. So, Resident Church, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Comes into your mind. Uh, that, that is the most important thing about you. Our hope for you, my hope for you, is that we might increasingly look to Jesus, who out of his great love for you and I, poured himself out for us. It's in his sinless life, his sin-bearing death on the cross and his victorious resurrection that we might come to know him and know his great love for us. So love you, Resonate. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.